welcome into the Cultural Coven. I'm your host, Nicola Roy. I hope this finds you well and thank you for tuning in. This week I have a beautifully vibrant guest for you. It is Scottish actress and musician of theatre and TV, the lovely and talented Saskia Ashdown. Saskia is a friend of mine that I first met on the Scottish theatre scene a few years ago in a theatre bar, if I remember correctly, and we then worked together at the end of 2019 on an Edinburgh Christmas Carol, an adaptation of the Dickens classic at the Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh. And since then, Christmas, as actors know it, has been cancelled, really, due to theatres closing because of the pandemic. However, Saskia is an actor that you may have seen more of than others during lockdown, as she was one of three actresses in a filmed performance of Lament for Sheku Bayo, an important artistic response to the tragic death of a man in police custody in Scotland, something which we will talk about on this episode. Here in the coven, Saskia chats her somewhat non-traditional path into the arts, being nicer to yourself, diversity casting, the nooks and crannies of working as an actor in an agent's office. Oh, and most importantly, she reveals her rehearsal room biscuit of choice. A fascinating episode. Enjoy. Nicola Roy's The Cultural Coven is in association with the Lyceum Theatre and the Stephen Dunn Theatre Fund and is produced by Emotion Theatre Company. Hi Saskia and welcome into the Cultural Coven. It is so lovely to see you, albeit virtually. How are you doing? Hello Nicola, I'm really well thank you. How are you? I'm okay, yeah. Living the lockdown dream via my bedroom, which you can see is a bit of a riot um, (laughs) because there's cushions and curtains everywhere to try and dampen the sounds of my dulcet tones. Um, So the last time I saw you um, was not long before the pandemic hit and we were catching up with a few others from the Edinburgh Christmas Carol Company in a pub. Remember those things? Oh gosh, I know. Missing them, right? I think I actually wangled us a bottle of Prosecco as well. (laughs) You did. Nicola Roy is the social secretary of any group. I can't wait to resume that title. (laughs) So uh, we were um, both in an Edinburgh Christmas Carol at the Royal Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh over Christmas 2019-20. It was a rather magical production. It went on to become the Lyceum's best ever selling Christmas show, Wild. The adaptation was done by Tony Cowney, so he moved Dickens' Christmas Carol to Edinburgh and we had the addition of Greyfriars Bobby via a puppet, which you sometimes operated. I did. I was sharing the role with Edie. And had you ever been a puppeteer before? No, oh, absolutely not. No, um, but Edie's a really good teacher and she had total faith that I could just pick it up and um, she's very patient with me. <gasps> and yeah, we shared that role. You're very modest. Um, so on that production, you were the main female understudy. So to give the listener context, this was a real ensemble piece. Each actor was playing multiple roles. The way the line of parts worked out, I... I think I had the most female roles. However, Saskia, on top of doing her own roles every night, was also understudying all female uh, parts. I personally have never understudied. I'm not sure I'd be any good at it. But you did that and it was your first Christmas show. Do you just like embrace challenge? (laughs) Apparently I did in this instance, yeah. It was the first time that I had understudied as well. Um, Perhaps there was an element of can't be too scared of something that I haven't done before so Um. why not jump into it and you know as you know it was such a fun show and we had a really fun cast and everyone was really just leaning into all aspects of it so it was quite easy to do that when everyone around you was going yep okay let's jump in let's do it all good 
Yeah, it was such a lovely company, actually, wasn't it? I think there was 10 actors and we, we had a community choir of 60 people and they rotated um, on shows, didn't they? And they were a really lovely addition to the production. Yeah, absolutely, they were. They're, yeah, really lovely. And um, they really helped fill that, that stage because it is a massive stage. Um, but I'm interested to know what the approach is of an understudy. Is it purely to recreate what you see others doing or do you have to put your own spin on it? You know, this being my first time, I would say I'd probably have to do it again in a non-Christmas show to know what my answer to that is. Because a lot of my process of learning the parts was actually through remembering the way that each of you would say your lines. So I didn't end up going on. Nobody ended up going on. In fact, Um, everyone, nobody ended up getting sick. So it was a miracle, uh, a Christmas miracle. Right, yeah, completely. And so I think the way that it ended up going into my head lines wise was as I say remembering the ways the the sort of intonation that everyone was using when they spoke so I wonder had I gone on would I have just mimicked those people I would have tried not to but um, certainly that's how the lines were in my head. To explain um, for some listeners who may not be aware this wasn't the type of understudy role that they sometimes have in the West End where you're literally sitting in your uh, rehe- your dressing room waiting to see if you're going to go on. Saskia mm. was on every night, also knowing there was a possibility she may have to completely change her track of parts. Um, we had a brilliant Scrooge in Crawford Logan. He was just such a stalwart. I can't believe that he did like 80 shows. Um, he was wonderful. Wasn't he? Were you aware of how many parts you were going to be understudying when you were auditioning? (laughs) Yes. Um, I knew that it was going to be all female tracks, but I had the script and that knowledge. But it was only when you actually see it on the timetable. Do you remember the the big table that was made? Oh, yeah. It was, oh, it was absolutely wild. It had all of the instances in which one person goes off and it was, you know, say Nicola goes off, that means that this person steps into this role, this person steps into that role, this character is removed completely, this scene is changed in staging, you know, we switch up this, we switch up that. It wasn't just a, you pull in one and you put in someone else, you know, it was this operation. It was incredible, really. Yeah, it really was. It had to be planned meticulously because we had 10 actors and maybe 40 parts. And so it was a logistical nightmare, really, but planned so well by the creative and the production team. But like you say, had one person went off, it wasn't a direct swap for swap. Everything would have shifted. So we were so lucky that nobody went off. It was a bit of a miracle, really. Um, So you were an actress, but you didn't originally train to be an actress, did you? You went to university first. I did, yeah. I didn't train in acting formally at all. Um, I did a business degree. And so where did the plan to be an actor come from? Was that a decision later on or was it something you always wanted to do? No, it was a decision that came much later. Um, I'm certainly not someone whose dream has been acting from a really young age, but I did drama and school shows and stuff as I was growing up. And I think when I got to uni, all of that was stripped away of my own choice. You know, I had just been so hectic for so long that I thought, oh, I'm just going to cut everything out and I'm just going to concentrate on my degree for a bit. Right. And I found that actually all of those extra things that had been filling the week and stressing me out a little bit were the things that I was interested in. And when you strip all that back and you're left with just lectures and tutorials on business, for me personally, it just got dry as hell and I wanted to do something else. That is so interesting. I believe you have worked in an agent's office at times, so you've worked on the other side of things. I have, yeah. 
so I've always had the fear about contacting my agent too much and I still don't know what's acceptable. What is acceptable, Saskia? <laughs> oh, it depends. What do you want to talk about? Some people call their agent once a month, some do it once a week, some do it once six months. What's the hmm. deal? Well, I'd say if you've got a nice agent, then they're going to understand that every now and again, everyone is going to need that little bit of support. It might be that you're calling going, I just want to know the lay of the land, what's going on, you know, what roles are coming through, what am I being submitted for? And also every now and again, you're going to get a call that goes, I'm actually, I'm just struggling. I feel like I haven't worked in a while. I just need a bit of a pep talk. And I think with a good agent who cares about the fact that um, you might be struggling, I think that you will get that. You'll they'll have an agent that'll be able to talk to you on a fairly regular basis. That being said, I would say personally, if you're calling them every day just to chat, no, no, no. You know, <laughs> you've got to leave them to do the work and get you the job so that you have the jobs and you don't need to call all the time. Exactly. Oh my goodness, every day that would be full on. That would be a I lot. I don't know what that, we'd even talk that'd about. That'd be sending people to voicemail, I reckon. <laughs> Um, I think it must be a very valuable experience to be on the other side of things, was it? Massively, massively. Because I started there at pretty much exactly the same time that I was signed. And this was because um, Susie, my agent, knew that I had done a business degree. And so I sort of slipped into that side of it um, in terms of looking at, say, payroll or um, more accountancy side things. Uh, I found that fairly straightforward. But I knew nothing coming into this you know I didn't it wasn't like I had a knowledge of the Scottish theatre scene or even new companies or anything I remember during my rep meeting she asked me who I wanted to work with and I couldn't give an answer I didn't know who was out there and who I might like to work with in terms of companies or people or anything so that first I think it was 18 months that I was working alongside doing work at the agency and I just sucked up information like a sponge it was really invaluable for me um I just got all of that knowledge and went right that's that's what they do this is what theatre they make this is the screen stuff and this is what happens there there and there and I think without that I would have probably been flailing and treading water for quite a while yeah I imagine that's a really valuable experience particularly if you haven't gone through the drama school system but I also think sometimes um that going to drama school as wonderful as it was for myself there's a few things that I wish I hadn't taken on board when I first came out I think it was sort of drilled into me to um, go into meetings and and portray a certain thing and actually the more experience I get I think it's more important just to be yourself really you only have yourself to sell is there any plans to ever um, bridge the gap and be both agent and actor no no definitely not um having worked in the office I can see the intensity of what they do I mean we think about how we look at our own careers as actors and you go okay I might like to do that I might like to work there there and there agents are doing that but with what minimum 80 people it's intense it's not not my bag in terms of a an actual career so how did you get an agent then because I got my agent from doing a showcase at drama school at the end of my three years. How does somebody who hasn't gone through the drama school system get an agent? My path into it was that I was part of a rep style company for a year called the Attic Collective with um, the Edinburgh King's Theatre. And we did three shows across the year and I was the lead role in the contemporary piece that my agent came along to see. And so I think there's it becomes a sort of catch-22 caught between a rock and a hard place doesn't it where you you need to 
be in a show that someone can come along and see mm-hmm. but ideally the person that's coming along to see it is the person that will get you into shows right yeah um but that's it I think is just finding finding ways to practice to act and getting people along and firing off emails and hoping that someone comes along to see it yeah I think you're right about that catch-22 situation because I think for people who sometimes leave drama school without an agent they found themselves in a similar situation you need to get a show in a show to be seen but sometimes you can't get the additions for the show without Mm -hmm. the agent so um testament to your talent to to being able to do it like that and I was really impressed um in Christmas Carol just the way you embraced the whole process I remember watching you from the wings when we were doing the understudy rehearsal which by the way (laughs) does it give you the fear just thinking of it (laughs) Yes, it really does. I think my heart just started beating a little bit faster. (laughs) Oh my goodness. But really, we were quite lucky to have that understudy rehearsal. I think we had two because in other Christmas shows I've done, because it is a very um, intense process, there's a lot to be done in those three or four weeks. Often we just don't get the understudy rehearsal until we're about a week in. What would your advice be to anybody who is going to understudy? I would say start early. So I think there's a feeling that, okay, well, we're starting rehearsals five weeks before and I've got my own part, I've got my own track. Um, And I know that the understudy rehearsal or run isn't until, as you say, it's sometimes a week in. But starting early and getting it in your head means that whatever else you're doing later on is just building upon that. I'd say that's one thing. And another thing is, depending on how you learn, of course, but I'd say watching everyone who you're understudying as often as possible. And it may be that you're sitting in the corner of a room while a couple of actors are drilling scenes or working something out and you are just sitting there in silence for a couple of hours but if you're watching that the more you're hearing it repetitive in you know going on and on and on it's going to get in your head a lot faster that's I mean that's me speaking for myself because I'm quite an auditory learner but you know when I picture say one of your roles I don't hear it just as the words in my head I'm hearing your voice your personal voice saying it Um, Would you advise someone to do understudying? Because wrongly, I think, sometimes people don't take on the understudy role because they're concerned about how it might look, I suppose is the way I can put it. I think that's one of those things that's up to every individual person. And as you said earlier, there is a big difference between what I did in Christmas Carol and, say, working on a West End show where your sole role is to be understudy. but it's a useful exercise, you know, it's, it's a real serious challenge in terms of how far you can stretch your skill and your memory and how versatile you can be. So if that's something that you feel like would be useful for you and that you can embrace, I think there's not really a good reason to, to not do it if it's something that comes across your path, you know? I agree. I'm, I can, the only thing I can relate it to, I imagine, is like Shitterbrick Monday at Oren Moore. So for anyone who's listening in who doesn't know what I mean by that, that is the uh, the way we refer to the opening Monday of a show at Oren Moore where you have two weeks rehearsal and then you go in doing a brand new piece of theatre, but you have a two-hour tech and then you open to the press and you really do feel the fear. <laughs> and I imagine you might have lived with that fear every day during um, those seven or eight weeks of show 
I sort of. Um, I remember there was one time where it looked like you might have to go off. It was only for a couple of hours. And then I remember you coming up to me and going, no, do you know what? I'm good. Let's do this. But possibly badly, that feeling really went away, which meant that had someone had to go off fairly late into the process, I think I would have been blindsided because I'd not started to get lax, but I had almost forgotten that this was something that I was doing. You know, we were drilling lines, um, myself and Brian and Ewan, who were um, the main understudies. We had been doing lines still quite far into the production, but yeah, if someone had come up to me, say in that period between Christmas and New Year and said, you're going on, I would have gone, what? Going on for what? (laughs) Yeah, you guys were so meticulous at at drilling your lines, more than I've ever seen people doing a show. I was so, so impressed. You were so dedicated to it. So during lockdown, you were one of three actresses doing a very important and necessary play called Lament for Sheku Bayo by Hannah Lavery, an artistic response to the tragic death of a young black man, husband and father who died in police custody in Fife in Scotland. And this was also performed at the Lyceum Theatre under lockdown conditions. And it was then filmed and streamed to people at home. And it really was an unapologetic reflection on racism and identity in Scotland at such a pertinent time. It almost coincided with the Black Lives Matter movement and the death of George Floyd. Before we talk about the piece itself and Sheku's story, how was it to be back in a theatre during a pandemic? It was lovely, actually. Um... We started in the, the rehearsal room across the road and we all had to be social distance, of course, but it was just really nice to be even within touching distance of people and getting into the Lyceum was amazing because at that point they had already put that flooring over the stalls. So yeah. it, it transformed since last time I saw it. Did you wear masks then between rehearsals? So if you weren't on the floor, did you have to sit at the side masked up? Yes, yeah. Wow, it's just such a different way of working, but something we'll have to get used to, I suppose. And yes, the theatre looked completely transformed, which I believe was to allow for distancing and cameras on stage. And just watching it from home, I was very moved by the performance. I felt very affected by it and very angry at the real life events. So I can only imagine, Saskia, how emotionally draining it could have been to do. How around that did you care for yourself? Did you have to do anything to switch off after the show? Absolutely. Yes. So this show had actually been a rehearsed reading at EIF in 2018, Mm -hmm. 2019, sorry, summer of 2019. And that was only for three days. And I found myself really, really emotionally exhausted because we'd only been doing it for three days. So I hadn't put into place a sort of self-care system to help myself shut down afterwards and just sort of release myself from holding on to all of that emotion. And that was something that we all were very aware of when we came in to do this show as a fully realized piece was that you can't just take it home with you. You have to find some sort of, I suppose you could call it a cool down process that just means that you're not carrying anger because there were lots of emotions doing that show. But for me, one of the huge ones was anger. And it's just, it's not really healthy to be carrying that around. So there was a lot of For some people, it's taking a nice bath at the end of the day. For some people, it's, you know, watching TV and just just having that cool down is so important. And as we know, research is important, particularly if portraying real life events. How far did you go with that? Did yourself and the writer have any contact with the victim's family or anyone connected to the case? Yes, absolutely. Um, 
Sheku's family, his sister, um, she came along to see our dress rehearsal as well as their family's lawyer, Amar Anmar. And it had always been so close to our hearts and it was a sh- it was a, a story that had been on our minds for a long time and then having this conversation with Caddy, Sheku's sister and Amar Anwar it just reignited everything all over again and that had been happening throughout the process you know we'd been it was trying to find that balance between doing a show in its most basic practical sense and doing something that you feel so passionately about so there would be some days where you were walking about and we're just drilling lines you know I had post-it notes up on my walls because a lot of it was um quite information dense mm. but every now and again you would have this just surge of really truly remembering what it is we're doing and of course having people close to Sheku come along and see that show and support it thank us for it which was just it was a lot um but it makes it feel so worthwhile, you know, when you're doing something like that and you have the support of people who matter to him yeah. and who he matters to, you know. Wow, yeah, it was a very um, effective and, and pertinent piece of theatre. Um, on a previous podcast, one of our guests, Ian Rankin, discussed how he was relieved he had retired his character of Rebus, who is a policeman, because it's very hard at the moment to write the police as heroes. I wondered what your feelings are on that. I can completely understand where he comes from. Um, I think you can see it in the way that kids are brought up, you know, so white kids are brought up being shown that the police are those heroes, that if you're in trouble, you call the police. And I think story like, stories like Sheku Bios, stories like George Floyd, just illustrate that when you're black or brown, your parents are teaching you, okay, the police are there, but they don't see you in the same way that they see white kids. So if you're in trouble, you need to think twice. I mean, you've seen all of the stories of the people who call the police and the police arrive and they end up shooting and killing someone who called them in the first place because they were in danger, you know? Um, I can, yeah, I can completely understand Ian's feelings to not want to make the police heroes because, you know what, a lot of the time they're not. And it's an institution that has so much corruption running through it. Um, If you say, put that next to Line of Duty, show we all love penultimate episode tonight. Um, (laughs) You watch that and you... I think there's a tendency to assume that that is pure fiction and there's actually so much truth running through it. I mean, just the episode last week, I don't know whether who's been watching it, who's caught up probably a lot of the country, but they've, they've brought in a few themes that link to Stephen Lawrence's murder, for example. Yes. And I think that's bridging the gap between it being pure fiction and reminding people that actually these stories, this corruption runs deep in the institution, in the world that you're living in. It's not just something that you watch on TV. Absolutely. And growing up as a mixed-race woman in Scotland, did you feel that? Well, yes and no. So on one side of the coin, I grew up in a very, very white-populated area. Um, but at the same time, it was a small town. So there, I wasn't coming into contact with, say city police sure but at the same time as I say it wasn't like it was me and I don't have any siblings or anything so it wasn't it was only really 
myself who was mixed race, black and, and white at my school. So you did the show during a pandemic, which meant that you did not have an audience. How was that? Because there's no feedback. Yeah. Um, again, it's a sort of split answer. So on one side, it meant that the show really felt like it was for us and it allowed us to perform it and then be in our own little self-care bubbles afterwards. Whereas, of course, I, it would have been a completely different story if we were performing it and then going out, say, into the bar or something and a lot of people talking to us about it. I imagine that would have been quite overwhelming. Um, but you always want the reaction, don't you? And especially with a show like that, you want to feel the sort of palpable um, a rage, I guess. So, it, you know, everyone decides what they want from an audience. But for me personally, as we were doing the show, I, I, I want people to have that empathy and to see it. And most importantly of all, to to take the emotion that they feel from that show and harness it into action because there's a feeling of helplessness when you watch these news broadcasts and you think well there's nothing that I can do about that personally but of course there is you know these things happen on a sort of a sort of pyramid where at the top you've got genocide of races and underneath you've got police brutality and murders but right at the bottom of that pyramid is your friends making slightly racist jokes and you not calling them out for it. So we can all we can all do our part and we can yes. support those causes that are important to us. And that's what I hope, apart from spreading Sheku Bio's name and making sure that more people in Scotland know his name than did before. Yes. It's also, I think, so important to to take what you feel from that show and to and to use it. Yeah, we are, we all have responsibility in this to um make people accountable and to try and make a, a fairer world. So I have really learned during this time how much I am defined by my job. Without theatre, without the audience, without the social circle that goes around it, uh, I'm not really sure who I am. How have you handled the pandemic and not having as much opportunity to be creative? I've sort of sought creativity in other ways and that's been different across the different lockdowns I think the first one was very productive oh I can't do anything so what can I do instead yeah um, and I turned that into you know, music and bought some drawing materials and just <laughs> tried to get some sort of creativity in my life but I totally get that I think it shows us how much of a community thing it is we do because we could have sat home and say did self-tapes off our own backs just for practice or we could have read a bunch of plays I'm sure people did those things as well but I think that comes with a ceiling because you get to a point where you can do things by yourself and then you go nope I want to play with other people I need people yes. you know, around me to do this um and yeah I, I really did feel that absolutely I've yeah definitely craved being around people crave being around you Saskia and going for a drink I know I know it's the one day soon hopefully so who were your inspirations growing up did your family support your acting path Oh, yes, they've always been incredibly supportive. Um, my family are very much of the opinion that if it's something that is making me happy, then I should go for it. Um, my granddad in particular would always buy me books based on whatever I was interested in at the time. Aww. So he'd buy me lots of business books when I went off to do my degree. And um, it's quite beautiful, really. It was so he didn't live long enough to see me actually make this my career but he knew that it was something that I wanted to move into 
just before he died. And so I've got a collection of books that he bought me, which sort of bridged the gap, actually. I've got, you know, business for actors and stuff like that. That is so sweet. Yeah, incredibly supportive. It's lovely. In terms of my influences, I honestly, I'm so fickle when it comes to favourites and those kind of questions that I go like, oh, you know, this person, this person, then it changes and I can't remember who I said in the beginning. So (laughs) I don't have a good answer for that, I'm afraid. And I think that's a fair enough point. I think I definitely shift on who influences me and who's current at the time as well as mm. you're influenced by what you've just seen. Um, what would be your ideal role, Saskia, your dream role? I'd like to do something that's a biopic. I'd really like to portray someone who exists and I'm not sure who that is, okay. but I'd really like to be able to do that kind of process in terms of background and research, you know, having that all there on a plate that you can really delve into and work at it and and look at people's say mannerisms and accent and stuff like that so not sure who but someone who exists already the cultural coven is delighted to have musical support from singer songwriter musician member of the red hot chili pipers and very importantly a fifer Cameron Barnes. This song, Coming Home, and the rest of Cameron's music is available on all the main streaming platforms. So go on, download it and have a wee dance about your kitchen. Thanks Cameron for letting us use this tune. So you were talking there about your ideal role being a portrayal of a real person or dramatising real events. And we've talked a lot about working in different ways. So those two things you did in Lament for Shaco Bio, but not only was it a filmed piece of theatre, but you did it live, right? Yes, so it was what they refer to as as live. So we filmed it from start to finish. There weren't any scene breaks or anything. Um, And we took that footage and then that was streamed, but not in the same way that, you know, it'll be live from 12 o'clock and you've got till 12 o'clock tomorrow to watch it. It was at fixed times. So I think it came on at, say, seven. And if you tuned in at uh, 10 past seven, you'd have missed 10 minutes. So it was fixed in its time, but it wasn't us standing in the theatre as you're watching. Okay, I I have to say, I think it worked really well because sometimes theatre just doesn't come across very well when being filmed. But I think um, that sort of documentary type style play, if that's a fair thing to say, really worked. It was just really, really effective. I'm glad you think so. So Black Lives Matter has been a key focus in 2020 and continues to be in 2021. And quite rightly so, there's been a lot of discussion around equality and in particular racial equality in casting in our industry. What do you feel still needs to change to address that? Um, I think like all aspects of life relating to racial issues, it's accountability. Um, I think there's a general feeling of fear of getting it wrong and um, sometimes a little bit of overcompensation, sometimes not enough. And I think it's just looking at it head on and taking the examples of when diversity has affected lives so much. I mean, if you look at, say, a film like Black Panther, which Mm -hmm. for the first time Black kids were able to watch and see themselves as the lead superhero, that's incredible, you know? And there's proof out there that when you diversify your cast, the audiences love it because they can see themselves and their stories on screen. In terms of a practical way to address it, I think 
I think it needs to swing the other way in direction to then balance out, if that makes sense. So we're at the stage now where people are seeing a black family in the Sainsbury's advert getting on Twitter and trolling and saying, this isn't, you know, I, I should be able to see myself and forgetting that in every other instance on mainstream media, mm-hmm. they are seeing themselves. So I think there's going to be a lot of adjusting that balance by pushing in the other direction right. to remind people who is out there who wants to see themselves represented on screen. And I think, I hope that it will be something that eventually levels out so that we're not looking at, say, a play or reading a book and just assuming that this character is white. And I think that's what happens, isn't it? Is that you you read something and because you're so used to seeing white characters yeah. or being around white people, you it, they're white in your head. And that's okay, but it's it's really making an effort to shift that mentality and be open about the fact that, okay, well, why do they have to be? Yes, right? exactly, exactly. You're right. We've been so conditioned to assume when we read books or we're going to watch a play that it will be a white person. It makes sense though I think if you've you know if you've grown up with majority white people around you then that's going to be who enters into your head and I think that's the part that is fine it's just the people who have the power to start to affect that Mm -hmm. and to change that need to be doing so. Absolutely yeah I completely agree. So Saskia you're also a pianist and a saxophonist what kind of music inspires you and where did you start playing where did your love of music come from? Oh, that's one that's been there from an early age. Um, I first started taking piano lessons when I think I was, I think it was about six and saxophone when I was eight. Um, so that's been a long-term love. In terms of music that inspires me, um, piano music, it's almost always classical music, particularly right. Chopin. That's the stuff I love to listen to. That's the stuff I love to play. Beautiful. Um, sax it's got to be jazz it does I'm actually a classical saxophonist which um, is fine (laughs) completely fine but you know I'm not a jazz player which would be very cool how important do you think reviews are do you read them I do I haven't really sat down and thought about why I do or if I should Um, I think as I've been working the understanding that reviews aren't everything has been getting greater and greater, you know? Um, And I think before it might be a case of reading something and without even really meaning to, taking that person's word as gospel. And if they disagree with something going, oh, right, maybe we got that wrong. Maybe I didn't do that in the way that I should have done. But then you read two other people's, three other people's reviews and realize that they're all conflicting and they're all saying different things. And I think at that point, that was, it reminded me how close it is to life. So if I think about, say, my favorite TV show or my favorite book, I could find someone out there who goes, that is the worst book I've ever read. I hate that TV show. I hate everything about it. And that doesn't make you stop loving it yourself. So I think there's a balance, isn't it? You know, you go, okay, I take that, um, I take that criticism on board, um, whether that's about the show or whether that's about me personally, but ultimately you just need to take it all in and decide which parts you're going to listen to and which parts you're not. Yeah. I mean, I'm absolutely an actor who does read reviews. I'm not, I know. I'm not sure. I know I'm, you are. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, I believe anyone who says that they don't. But like you say, you to 
be able to continue with the show or continue in the business, you have to be able to, to some extent, switch off from it as well. You know, if you're going to take the good reviews, you also have to be able to take the bad reviews. So you performed in Disco Mum with the lovely Julie Graham as part of Scenes for Survival by the National Theatre of Scotland during lockdown. How was that process doing things virtually? Were you working from home? I was working from home, yes. Yeah. So they gave us the scripts and we got on Zoom call and rehearsed them. And then we had the technical team helping us to set up camera and set up audio and to sync it. And well, they did all the magical editing after we had filmed. But yeah, that's what we were doing. We were uh, recording sort of as we are now on Zoom where we can see each other. But of course, there'll be some sort of delay in audio. And that's the stuff that they all fix in the edit. We just say the things and look at each other and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the magical editors. We love them. <laughs> um, so I'm going to move on to our creative challenge. In keeping with the theme of understudying, we're going to call this week's one, You're On. I'm going to give you a couple of lines and they'll either be from speeches of the characters you were understudying on an Edinburgh Christmas Carol or they'll be cue lines from other characters to characters you were understudying. Mm, okay. Yep. And I would yep. like you to finish this speech or respond accordingly. And then tell us the character and a bit of context. I know it's a bit cruel, but it's quite exciting <laughs> to see how no, good your memory is. So, number one. I will give you the line. Okay. Merkiston Castle. Your old school. I remember. Um, nope, don't know that bit. The place is deserted? Not quite. Um, someone's been left behind. Do you recognise him? Aye, of course, it's me. The end. Well hey. done, Saskia. Can you give us a bit of context? Yes, that was Ava's part, which was the green lady, the gro uh, gross, the ghost of Christmas past, who's taking Scrooge to see his old school, where he's been left behind, um, and his sister comes to get him to take him home. And you were also in that scene playing fan, weren't you? Yeah, I was a sister. And um, we had a Scottish ghost in this particular version. So um, Lang Syne was based on Scottish folklore of, of the Green was, yeah. Lady. Number two, are you ready? I hope you have game show music to edit into this, by the way. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the line and if you could finish the speech, I'll then come in with a response and then if we could just continue as far as we can. Oh, Mr. Scrooge, that's me away. <laughs> You're late tonight. Over to oh you. no! Um, uh, some, I put your something in something. I put the bed warmer in the bed. Um, is I, that it? Will I give you it? Christmas might mean. Oh, Christmas might mean nothing to you, holy willies. But for the for us wives and mothers, um, um, something. <laughs> really? Well, I give you so. Christmas might mean nothing to you, holy willies. But we mothers and wives are up to our eyes. Other preparations. I've left your grill by the fire. And I put your bed warmer in the bed. That was quite unnecessary. This is yours. I couldn't help but do the voice. I know. That was quite unnecessary. <laughs> I tell you, no, I don't have it. I tell you, it's that cold in there, you'll be farting snowballs. Snowballs. Way Well done, Saskia. And what was the Your most famous line. <laughs> this was uh, Nicola Roy in an Edinburgh Christmas Carol playing Mrs. Busybody. <laughs> And she was speaking to Scrooge as he was uh, coming home and, and she's his cheeky housekeeper. It's one of the first scenes, isn't it? Yeah, it was actually. Uh, so number three. So there's three characters in this scene. 
I will read two of them. And if Jeez. you could fill in for the third character. Are there no poor houses? Oh, yes. <laughs> God, I don't know. I don't know that. Plenty of poor houses. There's a very large one just round the corner. Very what? large indeed. Forest Road. Awful place. Ooh. Takes up the whole street. Dreadful place. Uh, nope, don't have that. <laughs> you did very well, Saskia. Yes. Those were hard. See, yeah. learning both of those, because you, you, um, both you and Belle are like twins in that scene. So you just, you either learn all of it or it dips out your head like it has done for me. I don't <laughs> know on. how you managed to learn both those parts. Yeah, so that was Lottie Lean Bones and Betty Big Chin, um, which was played by Belle Jones and myself. And they were the charity collectors who visit the very mean Scrooge. Well done, Saskia. You remembered Oof. a lot. Oh, it's not bad for a year and a half, huh? Really, really well done. I'm impressed. Um, I don't, as I say, I don't know how you remembered those two characters. I remember watching you switching um, in the understudy rehearsals. I mean, I could barely remember my own lines, never mind somebody else's. That was the hardest part of the understudy, I think, was having two that were so similar. Do you remember that infamous moment when um, my costume flew open and you were on stage? <laughs> yes, <laughs> and you exposed yourself to the children. <laughs> Oh my goodness. And I didn't realise for a good couple of minutes and I wondered why everyone was laughing. I thought, I'm getting really good laughs today. No, it wasn't. The legs you'll go to, honestly. <laughs> it wasn't my acting. It wasn't my good acting. It was just they were laughing at me, not with me. <sighs> so would you have any advice for anyone going into the industry? I would say, actually, one thing that I've, I've heard other people advise is if there's anything else that you can do do that instead and I really don't like that I'd say mm. my advice would be the complete opposite don't let anyone tell you that's just just because it's hard you can't do it if it's something that sets your heart on fire and you know that doing that is going to make you happy then go for it you know I think it's it's good to have a route to reality in that so many people get so little money from it and it might not go in the direction that you want it to go but do you know what would you rather be happy and not make as much money as you hoped you would or make lots of money and be completely miserable? You know, I think for me, there's an obvious answer. So yes, I'd say one piece of advice is to ignore the people that try and scare you out of this job because they're almost always the people who have made lots of money from it. And I have no idea why they're saying it. So that's number one. Well, that's interesting. Um, number two... I think is, which sounds a little bit contradictory to number one, but I don't actually think it is, is remember to keep your life whole. So it's it's so easy to make it, um, to get into this sort of echo chamber where your whole life is acting and all your friends are actors and that's lovely. But I think it's also really important to keep pieces of your life that are just for you. Yeah, I agree. I think they're brilliant points. As I said, I, during lockdown, have realised that so much of my life is centred around work. Now, I love it, but it's very important to have a good work-life balance and something that I need to work on a little bit more. We're very guilty of putting this job above everything, and I'm not sure that's always the right thing to do. No. So you've worked in TV and film and theatre. What is your preference? Um, I lean towards theatre because of the way that it's put together. 
Um, don't get me wrong, absolutely love both. And it's usually a case of whichever one I'm in at the time is the one that I love. But in terms of the way that theatre is rehearsed, and of course on TV and film, you sometimes don't even get rehearsals. It's just nice to have that extra bit of bonding time, yeah. you know, and to get to really know everyone as a company. Whereas a lot of the time, you know, if you've got a couple of days on something or one day on something, you're arriving hearing 50 to 100 names at once and then going ah don't remember any of those and leaving and having enjoyed the day but not really got to know the people and I think I'm sure you can attest to this like this this industry is about people and having I think that's what I really love is having that time to to work in depth with folk yeah there's nothing better than coming away from a job feeling like you have a theatre family you've really connected with people over those couple of months um, so is um is the plan for um the show uh, Lament for Sheikh Bio to go on further? I hope so, yeah. Um, I think it's it's certainly got a future in it and I really hope that that future will be when we've got an audience in and we can actually have, as we were talking about earlier, that interaction and that live feedback because I think that's what it deserves. So do you think it might go on this festival? I hope so. I hope the festival will go on this festival, but, you know... What are we in? This is end of April. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Yeah, because we had Liz Lockhead on um, chatting about her Medea, which was cancelled last year at the International Festival, and she's still waiting oh. to hear as well. So that would be really lovely um, if both shows went on and we were able to see some really good Scottish-based theatre. Um, also, there was a real political undertone to that show, um, obviously, and something we've talked about a lot on the podcast is the fact that Scotland used to have some really strong politically based theatre companies such as 784 and Wildcat, companies that existed long before you and I came into this business, but we don't have that anymore. Do you think that is something that Scotland could benefit from? Absolutely. I think... Theatre can be everything, can it? It can it can be an escape, it can be a respite, but it can also be a platform to communicate things that are difficult to have in just a face-to-face interaction and conversation. Um, yeah, do it all. Let's have all the conversations that we're too nervous to have with each other. Yeah, I'm in agreement. And artists are great people to start these conversations because we have a platform to do it on. And part of our job is to engage with the outside world and we tend to be quite liberal people. Uh, although I don't know how much we might want to portray this period on a stage. Do we want to see lockdown on stage? I'm not sure. Um, it's been so tough on everyone. But then I think, goodness, I have no idea how our first minister is steering us through this. I'm just in awe. Yeah, there's something to be said about how Nicola Sturgeon has handled it, how Jacinda Ardern has handled it. And I think that their gender can't be overestimated as a factor. I think, call me biased, but there's just something about the way women run things when they're in positions of power that if well if you're doing it right I think it's it's so effective absolutely so we know that break time treats are pretty important in theatre um I love a biscuit I love a sweetie I'm not going to pretend <laughs> it's something I've talked about a lot on these podcasts but it is really really important it's our bonding time uh you know in the breaks we go into the green room really we have is. a cheeky cake a wee biscuit sometimes people are rule breakers eat them during rehearsals I'm not <laughs> going to judge them for it my particular uh, biscuit of choice is something like a jammy dodger or a really chocolatey oh, really? biscuit. Yeah, I don't mind a wee sugar hit like that. What is your biscuit yeah. of choice, Saskia? Anything loaded with chocolate. Quadruple, triple, something, something cookie. 
See, I love a chocolate biscuit, but I go dairy-free during rehearsals because... So you do? Yeah, I was, it was sort of drilled into me at drama school that it would affect your voice, and it's something I'm now scared to break. Oh, no. There's probably no truth in it, but we were told that, so <laughs> so I'm sticking with it. Are you are you a baker, Saskia? Absolutely not. I, me neither. Claire Williamson's the best, though, right? She absolutely is the best. Oh, those lemon cakes that she made. Unreal. Uh, so for anyone um, listening, Claire Williamson is a stage manager at the Lyceum, one of our uh, very good friends, and she really is like the queen of baking. I don't know how she fits in around all her duties. 100%. So what does the future hold for Saskia Ashdown? It's an upward trajectory. That's what it is. Um, I want to be continuing to put milestones in place and hit targets that I've set with myself and do all of that with um, a certain type of empathy for myself and be able to feel proud of the things that I have done whilst maintaining that upward trajectory. So are you somebody who sets yourself like five-year plans and things? Oh I'm very much a five-year plan person. I'm not strict with them. I don't sort of punish myself if I if I feel like I'm not heading in that direction but it really absolutely works for me to do a sort of say a mood board or vision board or or write out things that I want to achieve or that I'd like to happen and it's for me it's a lot about getting into that mindset because I'm very much a believer of attracting the energy that you're that you're giving out and not only do you just have a better day if you're in a better mood but if you take that sort of time whether that's for meditation or you know journaling or something like that that gets you into a really into that sweet spot of a headspace that's I think that's everything I love it you are inspiring me here I need to get a bit more organized like that I think I'm a bit more throw caution to the wind type girl (laughs) that's good too you need to have a bit of both don't you yeah a bit of both all right a bit of balance but it's good that you're not too strict with yourself in in the sense that you're not going to be hard on yourself if you don't hit those points I used to be. I think that's why that's why I'm making such an effort to to not be like that anymore because um growing up and through school and university I was horribly horribly hard on myself. Right. Um and actually this industry's been a blessing in terms of the fact that it's not a meritocracy. So you can work very very hard and you can get absolutely nothing and weirdly that's been something that's really helped me because it's meant that I don't as much burn myself out to try and achieve things and I just go okay have you done your best yes what was the outcome actually it doesn't matter oh wow that is so insightful Saskia I have never heard anyone else in the business say they've adopted that thinking and that must be so freeing because it's healthy you need to pass that note around girl because I definitely fall into the category of trying to strive for perfection at work and you know it's not good I'm never happy and I'll probably end up one of them tortured artists or something maybe that's why I'm a bit more throwaway in my day-to-day life but you know, I like a party, you like a party, Saskia, so it's all good. And there's your balance, that's it, right? That's the balance. <laughs> I feel like I'm in therapy, this is wonderful. <laughs> um, so I am going to move on to the quick fire questions. Woo! Um, yeah, are you ready, Saskia? I'm ready. I always tell guests these are the fundamentals on which I judge a person, so I am judging you, Saskia. Okay. All eyes on you. So I'm going to give you two options. And if you could just fire back with your instinctive answer. Okay. Okay, here goes. TV or theatre? Theatre. The Bard or Burns? The Bard. Chippy sauce or no chippy sauce? No chippy sauce. 
Sin or virtue? Sin. Lady Macbeth or Catherine from Taming of the Shrew? Uh, Lady Macbeth. The stalls or the royal box? Stalls. Quinoa or cake? Cake. Always, right? Right. Arthur Miller or Noel Coward? Noel Coward. City or countryside? City. The slosh or the macarena? Macarena. A buffy or a la carte? A la carte. Camping or five star? Five star. Independence or no independence? Independence. Fancy Nancy or dress down? Fancy Nancy. Scrooge or Mrs. Busybody? Oh, Scrooge, sorry. <gasps> we are finished, <laughs> So you judge finished. a character, I have been judged. <laughs> Well, that concludes the quickfire <laughs> oh, questions. Cancelled, cancelled. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and chatting to me today. I so appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It's been lovely. It's lovely to see your lovely face. And I hope, hope it's in real life next time. Me too, pal. Maybe we can go for a wee gin round Brunsfield Link soon. I think we should. I'll bring the gin. I'm happy to provide. Well, what an interesting chat. Saskia has such a lovely energy. I always come away feeling calm and refreshed after talking to her. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed your time in the Cultural Coven with us. And that concludes the first series. So thank you to the supporters and to the guests who took a leap of faith and came armed with their best chats. If you haven't already tuned in to all eight episodes, please do go back and listen to Ricky Ross, Elaine C. Smith, Ian Rankin, Joyce McMillan, Sam Hewan, Siobhan Redman and Liz Lockhead. And an even bigger thank you to you, the listener, for lending us your lugs. Take care and bye from me, Nicola, a.k.a. Roy of the Stage, or as actress Jo Freer is calling me, Nick of the Mick. I don't know who I am anymore. Maybe I'll find out in another episode. Take care. Bye-bye.